this is not about pure financial return. This is about creating real options, you know, exposure to markets, exposure to technologies, to capabilities, et cetera. That almost becomes even more important in my mind in an era of macro and economic uncertainty and volatility. Business as usual, you cannot actually rely on to create the same returns and you have to be able to find new value streams, new value pools, et cetera. And so corporate venture capital is a longer term way to access those. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Matt Benholzer, who co-leads our innovation practice. And today we're talking about corporate venture capital or CVC. Why should you do it? How should you do it? And what should you expect from it? With us today are two authors of the article, How to Make Investments in Startups Pay Off, which you will find on McKinsey.com. We'll also include a link to the article in the show notes. Matt is a partner in our Chicago office. And in addition to heading up our innovation practice, he's also a leader in our growth and leap business building practices. Sid Ramtree is an associate partner in our Sao Paulo office and a core member of our private equity and venture capital practices. Thank you both so much for being here today. Matt, let's start with you. Why did you decide to tackle the topic of corporate venture capital at this time? Great. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here this morning with you for the conversation. And I'm looking forward to, I think, will hopefully be a fun and engaging conversation. So, you know, this is called making startup investments pay off. And obviously closely related to this is the concept of corporate venture capital. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion because this is actually, in so much as you can have controversy around innovation, one of the more interesting or controversial areas. People are always interested in CVC. Some always claim they've gotten a lot of value out of it. Others are interested in external innovation in other areas. Others are always skeptical saying, hey, we set these branches up. They didn't deliver. Uh, so on and so forth. And you actually see some trends where corporate venture capital has gone up and down over the years. So what we're going to try and do is tease out, well, what is the case for these? Can it be done well in a way that creates you know true value defined broadly, not just financial, strategic, et cetera, and uh, how to actually think about instituting well, especially in the current era where resilience matters a lot. Um, and you know we have a lot of uncertainty about the macro environment. Indeed. So what are some of the factors that are spurring corporations to increase their investments in startups these days? I think one thing is this idea that these all sound like truisms, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but your, comp your competitor landscape is broader than before. It is not just the same two or three big established players. A lot of companies go at each other, throw with back and forth in the economy now. There are a lot of startups that are reaching scale. They've had a lot of dry powder thrown at them over the last you know, 10 years, and that's changing a little bit as you know, easier money and in investing is potentially thing of the past, but they still are a lot of scaling companies that are nimble and attacking in many novel ways. The idea that you have a global need to drive uh, innovation and new businesses and new products and services and business models globally means you can't try and place very large bets everywhere all at once from a management throughput perspective, mindshare perspective, as well as things like financial resources. A lot of executives think that innovation is important. But those who think their business models are at risk for a lot of these factors that are driving it, a lot of times customers, even in B2B contexts, are expecting a B2C customer experience or interaction model. They're expecting to have easy digital ordering on an app with all the information at their fingertips. They're expecting seamless logistics and supply chains to get, they're expecting new products and services all the time. So how do you actually create the innovation backbone to deliver that? So... Companies are using CVCs to address increased customer expectations, more competition. Are there any other trends driving this increase? You see that there are a lot of things impacting companies where no matter what sector you're in, 
we've all heard about the trends of IoT, you know, advanced materials, you know, autonomous vehicles, you know, blockchain, et cetera. We're not going to go into that here today. But the fact of the matter is a lot of traditional value pools and business models are under threat because these technological trends are accelerating. And it's not just a truism that's kind of hand waved. We, we actually have done work to say, actually, when you think about the time it goes from inception of a new innovation or founding of one of the seminal companies that drives a novel innovation to when it reaches, you know, a million users or a billion users, et cetera, those are compressing, you know, faster and faster every decade. Um, it's almost like a Moore's law in, in adoption. And so if you're a company and a player that are under attack or potentially want to leverage these advantages, you can't just throw all of this at your conventional R&D department. You can't throw all of it at your conventional, you know, internal incubators or accelerators. You have to find a way to create more service area for you to gain optionality against these trends, fold them into your business models as, as appropriate, and then um, find a way to monetize them at the right time and place. So this idea of external innovation becomes very important. Thanks, Matt. I, I realize we haven't actually talked about what corporate venture capital really is. And I was hoping you could just give us a quick definition and then describe how it differs from other paths that companies might take to invest in small businesses like um, joint ventures or in-house accelerators. We're talking about directly investing corporate capital into startups or other shaper type companies, you know, usually as a strategic investor and usually with a minority stake. That is separate from other types of more fully owned partnerships, JVs or MA. And it also is a bit separate from internal innovation, where you have a venture studio or an accelerator, which is around how do you take some of your own concepts and accelerate them. Now, a venture studio or an accelerator incubator might have some of their constituent startup ventures partner with external companies as part of their own ecosystem they're creating. But that, that's a bit more of a you know do-it-yourself type lens versus the CDC that we'll talk about here today. Sean, I don't know if you're going to jump in for something, but yeah. Yeah, I, I actually just had a quick question about, in your experience, do CVC relationships often morph into things like JVs or outright acquisitions? Or do, do you see any sort of a continuum um, where CVCs are early in the continuum, but then there's other stuff at the other end? You know, that's a great question. And oh, we actually did some research on that that said, hey, is CVC a mechanism to create a more streamlined deal flow for, for M&A? And what we found looking across a couple of different sectors, both you know industrial sectors as well as consumer fo focusing sectors, is actually not, not really as much. I would say it's single digits or low double digit percentages of CVC investments meticulate into full on partnerships or M&A deals with the, the corporate investor. And when we dug deeper and talked to a lot of the people who run business development or M&A for these large companies, they're saying, well, we did try to use that as a pipeline more often than not. But what we found was we got a lot more business intelligence and insight by working with the CVC and using that as a way to gain insight for where the market is going than to view it as a you know funnel um, opener at the beginning. They kind of view them as complementary strategies. Very interesting. Thanks, Matt. Sid, thank you again for joining us today. Can you talk a little bit about the current pace of CVC investments? Absolutely. And once again, it's a pleasure to be with you to talk about a topic that I think is very relevant to any company looking to turbocharge innovation. I think almost trying to build on the point that you made, Matt, corporate participation in venture capital has consistently increased year over year over year. And even trying to sort of preview some of 2022's data, it's pulled back, but not pulled back in an unusual way relative to the rest of the market. And over the course of the past 
two decades, essentially, you have seen a very significant proportion of the Fortune 100 build out corporate venture capital units that they've actually stuck with in terms of having strategic commitment to. Participation on a deal-by-deal basis of corporates is increasing. There's also greater recognition of the value that startups see in working with and talking to corporates. You have seen forward momentum in terms of new corporate venture capital funds being launched across a variety of different sectors. And you're starting to see a bit of a coalescing in terms of saying these funds have a specific focus around industry, around maturity stage, uh, and are therefore sort of starting to come into their own from a managerial perspective as well. Sure. And Sid, are, are CVCs more popular in some sectors than others? On the whole, there is a pretty significant participation of CVCs across all industries. There are some that happen to have lagged a bit more, consumer by way of example. But I think what you will start to see now is that as the nature of disruption starts to impact all sectors in a very universal way, in some respects, perhaps even tying into environmental challenges, you're starting to see greater and greater visibility. I think about consumer by way of example, where you know the launch of so many attacker brands over the course of the past 10 to 15 years has made it very clear that internal R&D is not necessarily the only thing that can drive harder, better, faster new product development. There needs to sort of be the ability to tap into ideas from the outside. Got it. So um, what are companies primarily looking to gain from these corporate venture investments? Is it is it about gathering uh, capabilities or market entry or financial returns or all of the above? There's an important element of strategic motivation over here because Oftentimes, venture capital is sort of seen as being something that is purely financial return seeking. Now, financial returns matter. No corporation that puts money into a venture capital or corporation wants to see its capital somehow diluted or destroyed. But I think what we have consistently seen in survey work that we have done is that the ability to actually have a connection to your long-term strategy and the ability to go ahead and drive a strategy in a coherent way also matters a great deal. Companies value the fact that CVCs can allow them to drive better market insight, better visibility on all kinds of disruption, and also sort of like help build their name up in the broader ecosystem of innovation. Got it. And Sid, obviously, companies need to assess whether the venture arm is helping them develop the kind of capabilities or other strategic benefits that you just described. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the kinds of metrics that they typically focus on? to most effectively make those assessments. Absolutely. I think one thing that's always been important is sort of like a clear bifurcation between the financial metrics and the strategic metrics. You can definitely go ahead and measure financial performance based on IRRs relative to hurdle rate, cash on cash multiples. On the strategic side, it is typically sort of like accommodated and aligned a bond between the corporate sponsor and the head of the ventures fund. And what you will end up seeing is that the number of total deals prospected, the number of introductions that are made by the corporate venture capital fund to individual business units within the company itself are the kinds of metrics that are tracked. At times, it even goes down to the level of basically saying, how many strategic collaborations have we been able to drive between portfolio companies that we we have established sort of through an investment uh, and the business units itself? So what you do is typically... You want to go ahead and actually measure, you know, what is the quality and the depth of learning that has actually come about? Uh, you can go ahead and test this via surveys. You can test this via counting intros. 
But then you also try and get more tangible over a period of time to basically say, to what extent have I been able to, let us say, drive real product development, a real partnership, a JV, whatever the case might be, between a portfolio company and uh, and this uh, this particular business unit of the corporation itself. Awesome. And Matt, it looks like you've got something you wanted to add there. I was just want to pile on with one say, like these things that you see here with the market insight, the growth, et cetera, these are things that can be quantified with different metrics, right? So areas around how we've been access to particular technologies that our competitors would also want access to. Can we actually have a bit of an early look at that or maybe even exclusivity? And other theses around technology can also be around capability development, right? Have we been act? Have we gotten in view into different talent pools, right? Um, a lot of some of my clients actually say, how many recruiting goals have we met for new new profiles, which could be you know access to new technologies or different market access, because they see our commitment of the CVC as a as an element of seriousness to this area in space, and that's particularly important if a company is trying to move into a new market where they don't have necessarily the reputation or the brand. Showing that there's CVC investments then enables them to actually make a credible case, you know, in the war for talent. And then, of course, they can also measure a bit second order or third order implications around strategic or financial returns, right? Even if the fund might only have a return of a few percent financially, you know, if they say hey, we have now access to a market with a much bigger total addressable market, for instance, there that's also as well. Sure. Thank you both. Um, so these all sound like really great reasons that corporations would want to partner with and invest in startups but it takes two to tango. So what about the other side? For startups, are funding or market access the primary reasons that they embrace corporate venture capital? And are there any downsides that they're typically trying to protect against? What we've seen is that corporate venture capital funds have been able to build out a clear value proposition relative to the pure play VCs, simply because they sort of bring a very, very clear operational and strategic orchestration role to a lot of the things that happen to be driven by the startups themselves. Think, for instance, of a situation where an investment occurs and then a corporate can go ahead and actually provide access to expertise, access to sales channels, even potentially be a customer, provide tangible advice and at times even direct facilitation on how a new market can be accessed. I think, for instance, about my home continent of Latin America, where there are corporate venture capital funds that drive their value proposition to say, we are a window into a very large and significant market that is oftentimes overlooked. We have a set of enabling capabilities and assets that we can provide to our portfolio companies to help drive their Latin American expansion. And those theses tend to be very attractive to startups. Oftentimes the question of reputation also matters, right? The ability to basically say that I have a strong brand name company with a clear operating legacy in a sector that I happen to be playing in is massively important. We did end up conducting an analysis to understand what has actually happened to startups that happen to have received corporate participation in their funding rounds, first, second, and third funding rounds. What do we happen to know about, let us say, their ability to drive success? What actually happens by the time they reach a seventh round of financing, for instance? Are they completely out of business? And what we have come to see is that consistently, especially over time, companies that happen to sort of like have participation, even consistently, off corporates in their funding rounds, tend to find themselves in a much better position with respect to realizing a successful exit. They also tend to find themselves in a situation where the odds of failure happen to be lower. And digging sort of into this qualitatively is what we've discovered is that 
startups that are able to work constructively with corporates that happen to sit on their capitalization tables are the ones that are able to go ahead and draw real tangible advice at times market access, really go ahead and draw on all of the sources of value in order to ensure that their ultimate growth story is more stable and their path to profitability is also more stable. Thanks, Sid. So I'm curious how all this fits into this idea of creating digital ecosystems. As you know, we recently published a book on the ecosystem economy, and we'll include a link to the book overview in the show notes. I wonder whether companies looking to build ecosystems that may extend beyond their industry boundaries are also more inclined to take the CVC route. Absolutely. Technology is disrupting so many markets now that, you know, you're going away from this idea of saying that like I either sort of like stay exclusively in my link of the value chain or that companies that used to only be competitors cannot actually be collaborators and sort of like, you know, cooperate with one another. Um, And I think the fact that like those barriers are broken down has made it incredibly important for companies to sort of like use CVC as a way to sort of like get into new sectors. I think about some companies in the retail space, even in Latin America, that are trying to go ahead and push complete B2C ecosystems. For them, making minority startup investments has been a great way to basically be like, I have this customer access. I am able to sort of like through my own proprietary channels and through my own proprietary product offering, sell the following five to seven categories, right? I want to go ahead and bring you the startup into my ecosystem because I'm able to go ahead and expand the the reach of my my own consumer ecosystem, number one. And then number two, I'm able to go ahead and give you access to customers that you would spend ridiculous amounts of capital trying to access already because I have them. That's one kind of win-win where you sort of see a TAM expansion brought about. Another one, for instance, that I think about is everything that's happening in the climate tech space. If you think about a lot of the companies that are trying to pioneer new kinds of renewable fuels, one important almost validator that they need with respect to actually being able to build out their product and supply a new fuel to the market is evidence of demand. The fact that you can actually work with an end customer down the value chain and say, they are an investor in my company and with that is coming an advanced purchase commitment is a clear signal of demand. It helps push a particular industry forward and also really gives that particular startup the confidence to say, we can now move ahead with respect to building a pilot plant, a demo plant, and hopefully scale up into something larger scale as more customers come on board. So these kinds of things are becoming incredibly commonplace. And I think what it does for the corporate is really sort of like, you know, it allows new market access, but it also helps burnish your credentials, right? Other startups, other disruptors, at times even newer age talent will come and actually appreciate the fact that you, the corporate, happen to be investing in these progressive areas. So it does, over a period of time, like, you know, reinforce a certain kind of halo effect. Yeah. And and I would love just to add a few points because I said I, I think that was a fantastic response. As I think about leading companies who are trying to build ecosystems, there's a spectrum of options you can consider. On one bookend, there's, I would say, just the loose participation, right? And this can have the halo effect if you have market insights, you're seeing, you know, in the relevant areas, you get that halo effect I talked about earlier around recruiting. But it's more like you're, you know, a bit of a spectator. It can actually go all the way to the other end where you are the ecosystem convener and anchor element to, to, to as Sid mentioned, where it can go so far as he said, for instance, you are the 
customer that provides and de-risks the growth plan of the startup or of the three or four startups that come together that wouldn't have a reason to collaborate until they collaborated in serving you. And when you do that, you actually then accelerate the growth of the whole ecosystem and put yourself in a very interesting spot where you can shape it. And that's where actually CVC is quite powerful because sometimes many startups are hesitant to do that if they think the incumbent is going to use that just to contain, get asymmetric market access and you know potentially press their advantage unfairly. But with an arm's length advantage or arm's length minority ownership approach, that can be mitigated to some extent. And we've seen that in IoT and safety and security, et cetera. You, know, you see a lot of uh, these three-party deals for instance, where there is the the startup with a distinctive technology or area of um, you know of asset, you have the large company that you know has the access to the customers or other types of physical large physical assets to scale up, and you might have a third party which could either which could be uh, a funding agent area, like it could be private equity if it's a larger company, venture capital as well, um, de-risking the whole the whole event. And those three party deals are moving moving more and more common. We're seeing them particularly in areas driven by new technology, for instance, in alternative protein or aviation, stuff like that, where you need to actually de-risk the technology to, to grow. That's great. Thank you both. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure who wants to take this one, but I'm wondering at what point of a typical startup's life cycle, or shall we say investment stage, does a CVC usually invest? Is it the seed stage, series A, B, C, et cetera? Because one could imagine that at each stage, um, it gets more expensive for the CVC to participate. I'm happy to go ahead and take that because it has changed over time and it absolutely depends on industry and what is, let us say, the overall supply of startups over there uh, that you can generally tap into. So if you were to think about, for instance, a bank, right? Let's think about a retail bank, for instance, that is trying to move into more progressive payment solutions. There is a very wide variety of sort of startups in the payment space that you can obviously choose from. And there is a world in which you will want to go ahead and look at names that are more Series B oriented and tell yourself product market fit is established. They're starting to find their foot with respect to a path to profitability. This is the right moment to come in. And who knows, maybe it does provide me with some optionality for M&A, though we have traditionally seen that those conversion rates don't happen to be particularly high, as Matt was mentioning before. If you happen to be looking at a very, very early stage emerging set of ideas, so think, for instance, about the hydrogen space, something that we talk about in the context of climate change, the entire startup ecosystem is very early stage. And if you want to basically sort of have access to a new kind of hydrolyzer manufacturing technology, for instance, you will, as an incumbent, have no choice but to basically assume the technical risk because you will have to go ahead and invest early stage. So a lot of that is basically calibrated based on the nature of your own objectives relative to the CBC program. Now, what has traditionally tended to happen is that, and this goes all the way perhaps back to the late 1990s and early 2000s, is that corporate venture capital funds used to go ahead and invest quite later stage. Those very same funds that you end up tracking, I'm thinking about one, for instance, that's run by an oil and gas company that's been around for over two decades. With time as they've gotten better at this, and they've started to sharpen the focus with respect to their long-term strategy 20 to 30 years from now, they have chosen to go early stage. And I think sort of like as you build up the well of capital and the well of perspective and you actually get good at it, you become more comfortable doing it. What you will end up seeing, frankly, happening with much less frequency, however, 
is CBC's dipping into seed stage territory? Because it's a bit tough to go ahead and actually link, well, what does this offer so early in the cycle that I would want to jump into it, right? So that's perhaps the one exception that I would put out. Awesome. So in your research, what did you find to be the typical success rate of CVC partnerships? Sid? Execution matters more than anything else. So if you win and you practice this out properly, uh, there's a lot of value to be created, but there are lots of execution pitfalls as well. Great. Thanks, Sid. And yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. I think um, the tongue-in-cheek answer I almost say sometimes when clients ask me, should I open a CVC is, well, are you willing to endure, you know, 80% failures, um, you know, on your investments or areas. And then that usually creates a t- time of dead air before we actually unpack that and what it means, because that is still the path to success. But the question is, what do you do to actually weather that up and down, you know, trajectory? How do you actually make this a successful entity in the context of a multi-year, almost multi-decade definition of success? You know, if you're doing corporate venture capital, you are looking at you know, five years, seven years, et cetera, for these things to mature at the very minimum. Now those are those are not short time frames. So what does it take as a corporation to do CBC well aside from patients? I know that's what your article mainly focuses on. Can you take us through it? We've distilled it into three big trends or big areas. One is you need to have the right vision and strategic objective. You need to align on the type of ventures you want to invest in. And you need to formalize the operating model. And we'll talk about these in depth, but I want to stay here for a minute because when we say clear strategic and financial objective, is it access to capabilities? Is it access to new market? Is it access to insight? It is important to understand what success is from the outset because that will shape your funnel, your deal flow, and actually how you spend your time. And a lot of times this is what's needed to short circuit the inevitable difficult conversation that happens 24 months in where the honeymoon period has maybe faded a little bit. People are wondering what you got for some of your investments. It's still too early for them to pay off, but you can look at the leading metrics and indicators to say, well, we agreed that this was, for instance, to drive capability building and look at that we've been able through our presence to recruit 5, 10, 15 new uh, profiles of, of um, colleagues that we never would have had before. The venture type is important as well. A lot of times companies have a bit of a disparate approach to investment theses. Sometimes it's about, this is a great technology. Sometimes it's about, this is a great area of access. Sometimes it's about, well, our competitor was looking at them, so we want to get in there to disrupt them, et cetera. That usually is not a recipe for success. Usually there's a very core theme. Like we have a strategic objective to enter a new product type or a new geographic type or a new business model. And we're going to build a set of self-similar companies in that area. So understanding what you're investing in and why is an important criteria particularly if you're not interested in pure financial return, understanding what other impact you get is very important. And then we talk about opportunity sourcing and selection, leveraging the broader ecosystem. That is about the fact that it is a true funnel management approach. And I mean that broadly. A lot of times companies talk about the funnel as the very beginning part. Let's place a lot of bets. Equally important is going to be how do you actually double down on the bets that are paying out? and um, cutting out the bets that are not paid out early on. What you want to do is grow, you know, eventually a few very big and powerful investments that turn into great value creators for the company, not just drive a broad set of low-level market sensing that maybe doesn't add up or lever up to anything very large. You want to actually get out of that pilot purgatory, so to speak. And you do that by formalizing the operating model. This is, you actually have real roles and a real team behind this. This isn't just one person doing it with half their time. 
you know, trying to be the face of the venture studio um, and also the CVC and also something in R&D. It's meant to actually be somebody who's convening this and driving it, much like you would as a business development or M&A team. And that includes having well-defined governance. There will be a budget. There will be agile investment decisions. It's not being investing along the corporate budget cycle yearly. It's actually being based on the same type of approach a venture capital, a pure venture capital firm would use. You know, what is the the deal thesis? What are we going to hope to learn? What are we hoping that the company itself will learn about its product? And how do we actually revisit it once it's proven those milestones out? And what you want to make sure you do is to take those learnings, those milestones I mentioned, and make sure that they're linking to the business units. A big failure mode is that CVCs are seen as something that's on the side of the company, when in reality, this is meant to be an engine for growth of a BU. I would say it's a relatively even split where a CVC is actually creating the next line of products or the next market sensing into it, you know, intelligence for a business unit of an existing company or an existing business unit versus creating something net new and actually making those linkages very tight, even going so far as to have a business unit president or um, similar role on the investment committee goes a very long way too. Hmm. Interesting. So Matt, I've got a feeling that I know what your answer is going to be here, but because this may seem to go counter to what you just said about close linkages to the business, but do companies ever outsource the management of their CVCs to say seasoned venture investors or outside firms? Yeah. So you're joking about you what my answer is, but I'll try and soften my answer from typically not to where it can work. And where it can work is what you don't want to do is you don't want to just outsource it to, you know, pick your geography, Silicon Valley, New York, whatever of an existing VC fund and say, you know, you, you guys manage this for us. We'll fix, you know, um, you know, hands off, et cetera, because you don't actually get the ability to truly internalize the insights that Sue was talking about all those advantages that corporations have or existing players have, you know, around expertise, access to assets, you know, your brand new markets, you don't get that as well. And so you almost be just become like another LP um, to the the VC, and quite frankly, one that's harder to work with than a family office, for instance. It can work though, however, where if you have a truly run in-house corporate venture fund to make connections with pure play VCs, right? Um, it is not we I do have a few clients who will actually co-invest in rounds with pure financial VCs, or where the VC is a source of deal sourcing or market intelligence or introductions. Hey, this 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 seed company is interesting. I want you to meet them. You're not going to invest maybe for another few years, but I want you to have it on your radar. That is very valuable and companies do do that um, quite frequently. So I think it's a bit more of a targeted, um, you know, I would say collaboration versus a outsourcing approach. Got it. So it stays internal, but what's the model then inside the corporation for oversight of the CVC? Is it the head of corporate development, the head of innovation? I assume the connections need to be really strong between the CVC and the parent organization. So I would say there's a variety of roles and Sid can chime in here in a minute. I do think the ones you mentioned are you know quite common. Like there could be somebody who is the chief growth officer is, is an increasingly common term, for instance. Um, also, it could be somebody who is head of business development. Even the chief strategy officer has done that in some companies. I would say what's almost um, more important than the title or position is the, the trust that person has in the company. So a lot of times what you want to avoid is the hard-edged P&L owner of a business unit saying, yeah, I get that. That's five years out. That's not going to have me make the quarter. It's fluffy. I get you're going to try and get time on my calendar, but I'm not really interested in hearing about 
your Series A opportunity, unless the person who is doing that is actually somebody who has been in a PL role before or is trusted and is listen, you know, they can bridge the the long-term vision to the short-term imperative, right? And that carries a lot of weight. Now, sometimes by virtue of the fact that they got placed in that CSO role or similar role, they've earned that trust in the organization along the way. Um, but I do think that that idea of relationship management and orchestration can't be underestimated. Perhaps, uh, perhaps building on that, if I may, I mean, I think there's a very important element of saying you do want to try and see if you can actually bring in someone who has been a CVC investor to actually go ahead and run the fund itself. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes what happens is that in terms of ensuring that there's sufficient corporate participation and corporate buy-in, you obviously have this person brought in by this chief growth officer, head of business development, but also as individual deals go through, these kinds of seasoned corporate venture capital investors know how to almost find deal ambassadors and deal captains from within the corporation itself, such that when they bring a deal in and they want to get an investment made, it's almost, let us say, coming with a bit of a seal of approval, a demonstrated use case, the support of folks from within the corporation. And you do want to make sure that the person that you bring in or the people that you bring in know how to sort of like connect to the core organization itself, right? Uh, and, and it's a different skill than, you know, what a classic financial investor would want to do or is accustomed to doing, which is to say, I'm here, I found an investment opportunity, I just want to get the deal done. Got it. Thank you. Um, Matt, I just want to come back to those three principles that you ran through earlier on aligning vision, investment thesis, and operating model. How do you establish a shared vision for the partnership when the startup and the investing company may want very different things from the collaboration? One thing that is often underestimated is the fact that there is a lot of room for synergy and overlap between an investor and a startup but they do still want it sometimes some fundamentally different things. A startup will still want to grow as fast as possible. They will want their flexible operating model and they're ready to adjust their strategies quickly. You know, you want access to new solutions, technologies, et cetera, like we talked about if you're a large corporate investor. Those can be aligned with the right approach, but oftentimes it is not explicitly addressed and it leads to friction. Um, a lot of times a I've seen this happen where a corporate investor will say, well, let, let's give you access to customers. And then they realize through the, the customer interaction um, approach that the startup has a compelling value proposition, but is potentially cannibalistic to um, their own product now, or they undercut the product by proposition or pricing. Now that should be done um, and addressed properly with early upfront diligence. Whereas the, whereas the startup is saying, hey, I'm trying to just make sure we change the world, change the market. So understanding those guardrails early on is very important and realizing that what you want are similar, but not quite the same is quite important. And that's particularly important because the reason, again, the startup is working with a large leader is to get access to those customers or your brand or your reputation. If that wasn't valuable, they would prefer, and many founders have told me this, they prefer to work with a VC because the VC is like, grow as fast as you want. Let me know how I can help. Whereas the corporation now comes with a little bit more guardrails on their their, their, uh, their assets and capabilities they're giving. So understanding that give and take is important. Sure. Um, thank you, Matt. On your earlier point about sourcing, in your experience, what's the best approach to sourcing the companies that one should pursue as investments? So as a CVC, what's the best approach to sourcing the companies you should pursue as investments? A lot of times I would say 
startups or CVCs focus too much on any one of three paths, like the ecosystem, the inbound contacts, or the outbound outreach, you need to do all three. Well, do you partner with VC funds or go with equity funds? The answer should be yes. Those, those mechanisms are even one or two of multiple ecosystem sources you can cultivate, you know, including other universities, um, local founders, banks, et cetera. So thinking about the ecosystem and who you use to source should be an expansive view. However, you know, don't underestimate the importance of actually being responsive to inbound contacts and outbound research. If you do that, though, there's a caveat. I have worked with companies who are used to, I'll say, um, traditional business as usual speed of execution. And there's been some startups that have actually been, you know, quite fast and growing revenue positive. They were eventually they're going to be changing the market, right? These are they have product market fit, their series B, et cetera. It, it took this one company, I would say, a week to sign the NDA um, with the startup. And that multiple day delay from the point of view of the startup was enough for them to actually have to scramble and recover because they're looking at other counterparties already. So they almost lost that collaboration or partnership because of a one week delay in an NDA. Um, so, you know, I think it's worth thinking about that level of speed and um, how you interact in a collaborative way if you're doing these routes to make sure that you kind of are seen as a partner of choice and not just relying purely on your reputation, et cetera. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and th this notion of speed, let, let's dig in a little more there. How do companies optimize that process for speed? And are there any governance implications that they might need to modify their govern governance so it doesn't become a bottleneck? Sid, do you want to take that? Absolutely. I think the I think the most key message to pass here is the fact that investment committees are not meant to operate like corporate steering committees. Um, and I think in that sense, the vision for a best practice is always to say, you know, you do need to take sort of like as agile, as quick, as effective, but as stringent an approach with respect to basically wanting to ensure that the committee is comfortable with the deal uh, and that the process can be driven literally with a certain amount of deliberate speed uh, that matches the startup's expectations. Now, that does not necessarily mean that corporates are going to be writing term sheets that are just massively preferential to a startup at the expense of going ahead and, let us say, diluting its own interests. But it does mean that investment committees need to understand that diligences are about basically knowing what you know, but also recognizing that there are always certain unknowns associated with a particular investment and that that is really sort of like the sources of risk that can also go ahead and drive outsized reward. So I think one of the one of the classic best practices that are associated with investment committees is to basically say, of course, you need to basically kick the tires from a technical perspective, from a business model perspective. But it is important to also go ahead and acknowledge at the same time that there are certain risks and that, you know, those risks, as long as they are understood and there is knowledge of what they are, that is enough in itself, right? The other thing that ends up becoming very important that investment committees should focus on is the question of saying, is this actually tied to our business, right? Do we understand the strategic link that this could potentially drive? Again, fully knowing that certain things will manifest themselves with time, even if they're not apparent over here. I think from a pure process perspective, what is the idea over here with respect to actual composition? You go ahead and try and look for, you know, constituents of investment committees that are not too big by count. You do not want investment committees that are eight and 12 and 10 people large. You want to look at a small intimate group. You of course want to go ahead and draw in, let us say the right kinds of internal candidates 
But in certain instances, you may even want non-voting external members who can go ahead and actually provide a bit of a view, a perspective, a bit of a challenge. In certain instances, when corporates don't know sort of a specific industry area, they also bring advisors on just to sort of like provide a bit of a challenging view, provide a bit of education. The other thing that typically happens is that regular meeting cadences help. That way you don't find yourself in a situation to say, oh, we don't have an agenda. We don't have a calendar match. Sorry, we're going to have to talk about this deal three weeks from now. And then lo and behold, the deal itself has disappeared because the startup's gone in another direction. So consistency of engagement matters. It also helps drive that pattern recognition and learning on the part of those who are in the investment committee. And I think the third thing is to say there is liberty on occasion given to investment committees with respect to basically saying if a deal is of a typical size, approval from the investment committee is enough versus basically saying, oh, we need to always go back up to the board of the company itself in order to go ahead and get the deal endorsed because that can also slow one down, right? So you want to reach a point where you can go ahead and let us say, have that kind of agility. I think that's an incredibly key key point. I, I would think that corporate venture programs and investments could also be well-placed to stimulate internal innovation efforts. And how are they handled or how should they be handled? So doing so inspires in-house teams rather than causes friction or competition. I think what you want is a sense of positive contagion the strategic insights coming from the CVC program, driving new kinds of thinking, driving new kinds of ideation, and ideally even inspiring certain kinds of new business building. A corporate venture capital fund that invests across certain themes that are aligned to your long-term strategy can go ahead and provide inspiration to say, what are the kinds of new business ideas I think are actually workable for me? If I've invested in a company that has unfortunately failed, I've had certain massive learnings about what not to do in the construction of a particular business. In certain instances, I have invested in a company that I really like. I may not acquire it, but I've had the opportunity to, for instance, go ahead and set up a joint venture with it. How do I then go ahead and actually drive faster, better growth out of that joint venture? That is where the concept of an innovation garage actually becomes important. Now, why is that important? Is because you actually have the ability to go ahead and build an internal structure that is complementary to the corporate venture capital fund and focuses on this notion of actually building new businesses that will be a source of EBITDA and enterprise value for your company. Think about it as basically being startup building that is inspired by the startup investing that you happen to do. In the case of one of one client situation that we've had the chance to be part of by way of example, there has been an instance where a particular line of business was really discovered by the corporate venture capital fund. Uh, It inspired the company to say, we want to go ahead and look in that particular field for a local M&A candidate. They decided to go ahead and make that particular acquisition and then happened to put their own funding into what is now a 100% owned separate subsidiary to say, we will scale it up because we see the momentum of the market we have learned how to work with startups. They've also therefore been inspired as how to be a startup. And they happen to be driving that kind of scale up off a new acquisition via this innovation garage. Um, and again, the purpose of that was to just try and paint a picture to say, once you ground your corporate venture capital as really being the linchpin of your external innovation, it, dr- it can start to drive a lot of value within your internal ecosystem as well and inspire new kinds of growth. 
That sounds fantastic. And as you think about the trajectory of corporate venture investing, what impact does the macroeconomic environment and, and market for capital or valuations have on it? Obviously, things have gotten more challenging in some sectors, and that has had an Im- impact on pricing. Does that make a difference to CVCs, or are these really long-term investments, and the CVCs should just focus on long-term benefits and not on what the market's doing now? I'll take a stab instead. I'd love you to pile on. You can't ignore the macro environment, right? I think though, a lot of times the macro environment, people will conflict, will jump to the idea of valuation and valuation compression, for instance, for a lot of the existing startups. And if you're a pure financial return VC, you know, that can be a bit worse. And we hear all these reports of unprecedented amounts of dry powder. VCs are hard, you know, holding back to to wait to invest. For a corporate venture capital um, arm though, it's interesting because I would say on average, valuations for later stage companies have gone down more then the equity has gone down for the large corporate investor. So sometimes some partners or deals you wanted to invest in are now actually looking a little bit more attractive from a pure financial lens. And maybe it hasn't actually bottomed out yet, or maybe that arbitrage isn't closed completely yet, but it is worth thinking about, okay, well, what did we think about our own value versus the startup value and are things a bit more uh, down to earth versus sky high? So there's a financial lens. I think the other lens though is, um, this is not about pure financial return. This is about creating real options, you know, exposure to markets, exposure to technologies, to capabilities, et cetera. That almost becomes even more important in my mind in an era of macro and economic uncertainty and volatility. Um, business as usual, you cannot actually rely on um, to create the same returns and you have to be able to find new value streams, new value pools, et cetera. And so corporate venture capital is a longer term way to access those. I think you need to have that what can go wrong mindset more strongly imbued in your in your in your mind on, you know, are we okay losing money if this company does fold in three years or four years because it can't just refinance the next round with easy money? Would we still have felt like that investment was worth the price if that investment itself gets written off to zero, but we've got the capabilities or the tech or whatever? So I think it's worth thinking about that scenario analysis, but it's still worth continuing in this thread if you do value the point of real options in the in the current environment, you know, Sid. I'll go and add in two points to that, right? Number one is that from a macro perspective, a slowdown in venture capital does not actually mean that the rate of innovation globally has slowed down. In this particular crisis, as has been the case in every other venture capital crisis in the past, the rate of activity for pre-seed and seed stage companies has actually gone ahead and ticked up. Because what you naturally have is basically a new breed of entrepreneurs who have unfortunately found themselves you know, made redundant in later stage companies who find themselves inspired to do more on the early stage spectrum, right? And then when you go ahead and add to the fact that like, we're living in a time of unprecedented change, you know, socioeconomic, environmental changes as well, I think there's a greater call to action, which obviously, you know, corporates should not lose sight of. So I'd actually argue that there's a bit of an opportunity over there. I guess the second point that I would make is that the value proposition off corporate venture capital in some respects has actually gone ahead and, you know, gone up a couple notches simply because what is the one thing that VCs are talking about the most now? Disciplined growth, efficient growth, paths to profitability, focus on operating fundamentals. Who are the actors in the innovation ecosystem who know how to operate with discipline, have the supply chain, industrialization capabilities, the access to the channels, know how to enter markets based on established guidebooks. 
it is established corporations themselves. And I think what that is doing is that it is almost a healthy humbling of the entrepreneur to say, we want to sort of like now work with the right kinds of operators as well. Because financial investors are financial investors, strategic investors are strategic investors. I think the CVCs who can go ahead and make an honest argument for the strategic value they add are the ones who can actually come out of this crisis, actually improving the quality of their portfolios. Sid, Matt, thanks so much. This was a really great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. Our pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners who joined us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. And we'd like to thank everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, all you need to do is follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. If you prefer to access this on the web, you can also go to Inside the Strategy Room. You can visit our podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR. And there you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of many of these conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, just sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF, that's for Strategy and Corporate Finance. Follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.